All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's on page 1194. And what we're doing last week and this week is we are largely reviewing, though I suspect for some, some of the things that I will say will be new or sound new or be a good reminder because we had been out of this letter for two months and um, I don't know if you're like me but I watch some television and um, now that we have streaming you can watch these episodes and it'll say uh, it'll start out the show and it'll be like doing a recap from the previous episode in the bottom right hand corner now you have that wonderful gift of the the skip button now you can skip the recap But we don't want to do that with God's Word. We want to know this book because it is the most important letter in the New Testament. As it at most thoroughly explains the fundamentals of our faith. In the sense of the gospel especially. As Martin Luther called it, the purest gospel As Martin Lloyd-Jones, as we looked at last week, very clearly said, it's laid out here as the first letter, not because it was the first one written, because it wasn't, but it was the first in importance, and the church always recognized that. So we want to give our time to it this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we come before you and ask for the Spirit's guidance now and help. We are in need of Him, and we are in need of strength to comprehend with all the saints what are the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His love for us and how it's applied. And Father, there are people in this room who do not know You in a saving way. And I'm praying for the gospel to be the power of God and salvation to them. Just I pray that you would call them from death to life through the exposition of this book that you have used to do that countless times over the centuries. So we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Let me do something I didn't do last week and I don't even know if I did this in the beginning when we opened up Romans almost a year ago now and take a 30,000 foot view of the entire letter just for a minute. I'm not going to spend much time on each of these, but I break up and, and I'm not alone in doing this, of course, and it's not unique to me, but this letter is really broken up in three main sections. Each of those sections now have a bunch of subsections. We've talked about those. But there are three main divisions of this book. Chapters 1 through 8, that's one division of this book. One section. Arguably the most important section. In it is the purest gospel explained. From us being under the wrath of God, to what God did about that through Jesus, to how we respond to that, all the way through to chapter 8 that begins with 
no condemnation to those in Christ and ends with no possibility of separation to those who are in Christ. That is the purest gospel explained. Brings us from sin to salvation, from under God's wrath to under God's grace all through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the first major section. That's what we're still in as we're walking through this as a church And next week, we'll jump into chapter 5, verse 12. That's where we'll pick up, just go line by line. The second major section begins in chapters 9 through 11. That's a challenging section in a number of ways. So when we approach that that section, I'm going to call out for endurance in sound teaching. I'm going to ask you to... Pay attention carefully and be looking at these things for yourselves as we walk through it. In that section, Paul is really taking a turn there. And for those three chapters, he's dealing with the Jewish people who, of course, are near and dear to his heart because he is one. And he's answering this question that had been going on for about 2,000 years. If all of our Old Testament of our Bibles is about the promise of the Messiah and it was given to the Jewish people and he would come through the line of David just as we learn. Why is it then that the vast majority of Jews, by that I mean in the 98 plus percentile from the time of Christ until now are rejecting him? That's a valid question. And Paul seeks to answer that. And in the midst of answering that, he brings out some of the most challenging doctrines that Christian people have wrestled with for centuries. Doctrines like election, predestination, things that he just clearly outlines there showing even Jewish people are confused about that, about how salvation works and who it originates with. Again, I'm going to ask you to be Endure sound teaching when we get to those types of things. And to actually get to the point, so many Christians, they come to the conclusion on certain doctrines about God. And they say, I'll believe what it says, but I don't have to like it. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. What we want to do is we want to get to the point of a congregation that whatever God says about himself... Whatever he says he does, we say that is right. That's the right way to do it. In any other way would have been the wrong way. And we want to get to the point with doctrines that are even challenging for us and don't seem to initially uh, appeal to our natural instincts to where we are just glorying in God. You know, God is not ashamed of any aspect of what he's done. God is not ashamed of his wrath. He's not ashamed of the doctrine of election that he clearly shows in Scripture. He's not ashamed of the doctrine of hell and eternal condemnation. He has no shame in any of these things. He puts them forth and says, here I am. I am God. Now worship me for all that I do. Everything that I am. I'll tell you what. If you approach Romans 9 through 11 with that humility, 
then at the end, it will not be this conflict in your soul going on. It'll be joy to you. You will love it. You will exalt in who God claims to be. So we're going to walk through those three chapters. And then there's another transition in chapter 12. And that is, it goes from chapter 12 all the way through to the end of the letter. And these are really the practical outworkings of the gospel. Chapter 12 all the way through chapter 16. And it begins with that call to all Christians based on everything that Paul has just explained about the mercy of God. And most of us probably, if you've been in Christian circles for a number of time, have memorized this passage. If you haven't, here's a hint about our memory verses through Romans chapter 12. It's the first two. I'm already flashing forward to that, so you can be thinking about that. Where he says to this in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or perhaps reasonable service. In other words, based on what God has done for you in Christ, all this that you did not deserve, it's mercies, plural, that you have been shown from God in Christ, based upon that, then the only reasonable response is now you give your life entirely to Him. You serve Him with everything you have. And anything less than that would be less than reasonable service to the Lord because of what He has done. And it makes sense that Paul outlines it this way. begins in those first eight chapters with the purest gospel explained, very little very few commands in there given. There's a couple of them here and there. Very few commands, just putting forth what God has done for us in Christ. And after that parenthetical section of chapters 9 through 11 gets to chapter 12, and then it's time, chapter 12, to say, now give your life entirely in service to God. And he begins working that out through chapter 12 and the service to the body of Christ and then in chapter 13, the relationship of a, of, a, of a person, a Christian living in this world to his or her government and how that all works out. And then it gets into uh, Christian liberty and how to use Christian liberty for the love of other people and works out some of those very practical details, summing it all up, Paul, which Paul will do as love your neighbor as yourself. One who loves fulfills the whole law, you see. But it's important that he does it that way so that we never get it mixed up, right? The purest gospel begins with the purest gospel. And then, once a person has trusted in Christ, then goes to commands of how to live. Because without that justification, without that forgiveness, without that new life by the Spirit, you could apply all of the principles that Paul gives, all the commands of Scripture, every law, every command within it, it does you no good at all, you see. The gospel always runs in that one direction. And there is only one command issued with a gospel presentation. It is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't issue any other commands in the gospel presentation. 
You're leading someone to Christ. You share with them good news about Jesus. That means all you're doing is you're presenting facts to them about things that really happened and about who this Jesus is and what he did and what the cross is about. And then you issue the command, you must now repent and believe in Jesus. Leave on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Not Now, after I've presented this gospel to you, start going to church now or read your Bible or stop committing this sin or start giving money or whatever other commands you could come up with. None of that plays into the gospel, you see. That all comes later. That's discipleship. That's teaching somebody that's already become a disciple through the gospel, okay? So that's the whole letter. That's how it's broken up. Chapters 1 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 16. Now, turn back to Romans 1. This is what we covered last week, and we're going to cover the rest of it this week all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. I'll do that a little quicker than I did last week. I had a number of things I wanted to say last week. You'll remember in chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is really the introduction and the theme of this letter. Introduction and the theme culminating in the two most important verses, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in that, in those two verses, really are all the themes that then we took a lot of time studying uh, in chapter 3, 21, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 11. So we have salvation, we have faith, we've got righteousness, all of those key ingredients that he explains in the rest of it. That's why I say it's a theme. He's setting it right there. Those are explained. And by the way, those are your memory verses for chapter one. So if you haven't memorized those, you're behind in your memorization. You better hurry because we're already to chapter five, okay? And randomly each week, I'm going to pull someone up from the congregation, have them come up here, (laughs) ask you what the, I wouldn't do that. Maybe I would, I don't know. That's the intro, and then there's a turn, isn't there, in verse 18, to the wrath of God. That's a theme, really. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. The wrath of God revealed. You remember if we just walk through chapter 1, verse 18, and you go all the way through verse 32, we talked about this is just Paul describing the sinfulness and corruption of humanity generally and historically. And he puts it in such a way that you could follow world history, each particular nation and people group, and look at what they do and look at what they did and say, wow, Paul, you are right on the money here. And the wrath of God is revealed, remember, was not something that we normally think about the wrath of God like, cosmic disturbances and, and uh, uh, fire and fury. It's the wrath of God revealed in this way. He says in that God has given up humanity to what they want. And what they want was not him. 
It's sin and stuff. And they became worshipers of the creation instead of the creator. They reject the knowledge and truth about him. And Paul says, this is evidence of the wrath of God. Look at, he just gives them up. You remember we talked about specifically applying it to the United States of America, that this is really a history lesson. If you teach history, you could teach it from the perspective of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. You can see that systematic Rejection of the truth of God among this nation, holistically. We don't want him anymore. We don't want any part of him. We don't want him in our schools. We don't want him anywhere, uh, have anything to do with him. So God gives them up to do what shouldn't be done. They become covetous. They become idolaters, but in a more sophisticated way. They want things, possessions, money. This is what it becomes about. So he gives them up more. And what is the primary evidence of that in a culture? It is its sexual, moral uh, activities. Right down, he says, you want to know if a nation has been given over to the wrath of God, uh, see how they treat their bodies with one another. Do they honor God's natural male-female sexual relations within a marriage, or do they exchange those over? And what, lo and behold, what he's talking about here is clearly homosexuality. There's evidence, he would say. And it's not just that the United States has been the only one that does this. Paul was watching this play out in the Roman Empire. That was 2,000 years ago. This is all evidence of the fact that this is just the history of humanity. They don't want God, so God gives them up to what they want, and that is sin and stuff, and then the inevitable destruction and condemnation that follows. But then do you remember chapter 2? This was such an important corrective. Because what you had, he says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's a corrective, isn't it? To everybody who looks out at the culture, every Christian that looks out at the culture and applauds Paul's assessment and feels that righteous indignation well up in their hearts about all those sinners out there but fails to look at themselves. They fail to even judge themselves rightly. They're guilty of practicing habitually the very same kinds of things they're judging in other people. And he says all they're doing, and we're presuming that these are unbelieving Christians, but I think that even believing Christians can fall prey to this, where sin is always out there somewhere, or it's always in someone else, but not in me. That's the tendency, isn't it? Sin is always out there somewhere else, And out there, in that sin, in those people, that's the cause of all the problems. And if they would just get their act together, there'd be no more problems. But there's never introspection in dealing with one's own sin. 
And then he gets into the discussion with Jewish people from chapter 12 through chapter 3, verse 8, because he knew as a, as a Jew himself, they would be struggling with this. They knew the nations were under the wrath of God. They knew the way they were living was wrong. But here he had Jewish people that he was confronting constantly, and he used to be one of them that are boasting in their descendancy from Abraham and they think that's getting the kingdom or they're boasting in their law or they're boasting in their righteous self-righteousness and they're boasting in their works and they're boasting in all these things. And he said, you will be judged as the nations are judged but more than that, you will be judged more strictly because you have rejected the light of the truth. You've been given more opportunities and general grace than the rest of the world. That's why Jesus had to tell his own generation, it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Which is actually a weighty thing even to say to Christian people because do you understand, friends, how much light you've been given? How much revelation from God you've been given? How many millions and millions of people haven't had near, near the exposure to God or the gospel or his word than you? You are not exempt from the righteous judgment of God coming upon all mankind. Are you in Christ? And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, this is a summarization of that wrath of God section. What is this all about? It's a summarization of it all. He says, what then? Verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged, this is what I've been proving to you, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And that phrase, Jews and Greeks encompasses everyone because in Paul's mind here, you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. You're a Greek. You're a non-Jew. Therefore, all of them are under sin. Jews and Greeks all under sin. Sin's penalty and sin's power and influence. You're enslaved to sin. Sin's very presence within you. And then he lists, beginning of verse 10, a series of Old Testament passages most drawn from the Psalms to prove his point once again from Scripture. All are under sin. And listen to this. This is what we would call, the do- these, are, these are verses that we would draw on and say, this is a doctrine of total depravity. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let me ask you a question. Has God ever brought you to the point where you can read those verses and see that that's about you and you've actu- you actually feel it? Because remember, when he's saying all are under sin, it means everyone's was by nature in this condition. It's you. Again, it's not just everyone else. This is you. 
And you'll notice what he does in this. It's beautiful. He puts the doctrine of depravity in this context. It's from head to toe. Do you notice that? Your eyes, your mouth, your throat, all the way down to your feet. From head to toe, sin has corrupted you. You are depraved. Total depravity doesn't mean every single person lives as badly as they could. But it means that every aspect of us, all of humanity in entirety, is affected and ruined by sin. And that every person may not act out by God's sovereignty as bad as they could be, Every person has the potentiality to be as bad as they could be. You read about the time of the Holocaust. I just was reading a little bit more about that this week and the horrific things that transpired. That friends, ordinary, everyday German soldiers carried out. You think about in the beginning before the gas chambers, before they got real creative, they were just lining up Jewish people, men, women, and children. And there was a Jewish soldier behind the gun mowing them down. You say, wow, he was a special kind of evil. I would say, friends, he was a Romans 3, 10 through 18 person that was put in the situation where his sinful flesh could release just how bad humanity is. You see, what God does for us because he has a plan for the ages and this age. And so he keeps a lid, a sovereign lid on how bad it could be. By in his sovereignty, directing and controlling even the unregenerate to not do as much as they could. But sometimes he takes the lid off and we see it. You say, see how bad you are, human beings? You see what can happen in this? total depravity verse 19 then God's judgment brings us all to the point where we are accountable before him we have no defense every mouth stopped that means when it comes to your sin and this is so important you've got nothing to answer every mouth stopped everyone held accountable before God it was a courtroom scene and all of a sudden it goes now to the defense It's like, do you have anything to say about this? What does the defense say about this? And you have no defense. You're as guilty as can be and you know it. Verse 20, there's nothing you can do to remedy your own condition. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That you are guilty as charged and you can't like pick up right now and say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna start doing good now. And keeping the law. I see what you're saying, Paul. Yeah, I've done some bad things, so guess what I'm going to do? I'll stop doing bad things, I'm going to start doing good things. Certainly God will pay attention to that. And he says, by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified in the judgment. Anybody that pleads law in the judgment or their good works in the judgment will be condemned. That's the point. Now, before I go on with this, could you, could you, do you have enough of a grasp on those important chapters that you could walk through like I did with someone else showing them these things? That's my goal for our church to be that way. We are a Bible church after all. So I think we should be very acquainted with our English Bibles 
and know how it's outlined and be able to go through these things with people. And you really have to walk people through that to a degree. I understand you're not going to sit there through all three of those chapters, but I'm saying you're bringing out those main points. You're under sin and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't fix it. So you had to walk them to that point to get to the gospel. Verses 21 and on now are about the good news. So he brings you through that. He brings in the good news of Christ, but now the righteousness of God, the righteousness we need, has been manifested apart from the law because it's not through the law that we're going to get it. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Those are the most important verses in this whole letter. And understanding what he's saying there. That because we couldn't do anything to remedy our lost condition, God in his love and grace and mercy did what was required. He sent his son. His son becomes a man, lives and dies for us. And then he put his son forward on the cross. God did that. So you read those gospel accounts, you don't blame the Jews. In a sense, you don't blame the Romans. God put him there. This was God's doing. He wants that crystal clear. The cross is my doing. I put my son forward as a propitiation. Remember that beautiful word? That wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So the wrath you just saw is taken care of now. It was finished now as he absorbed the wrath. And how do we respond? How do we receive all the benefits of what Christ has done on the cross? We receive it through faith. Whom God, verse 25, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, you believe in him and all of those saving benefits of his life and death and resurrection are yours through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We see how that works. Could you walk through somebody with that? Walk through them with this gospel presentation? Bring them the cross, telling them how important it was? It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God had to do it this way. Somebody has to pay for our sins. For God to remain just, he cannot just forgive sin. He cannot do it. You ever wonder what God can I do? People say, could God make a rock too heavy? He couldn't carry it or something stupid. Well, let me tell you what God could not do. He cannot justify a sinner. He cannot forgive a sinner unless their sins were atoned for. He can't do it. Or he would cease to be God because he would cease to be righteous. Those sins had to be paid for. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that is the way now that he can justify sinners like you and me apart from our works of the law. 
That's how he can do it. That's why the cross happened, so that God remains just. And then in chapter 4, all through chapter 4, what Paul is doing here is he's explaining to the Jewish people specifically, but to all of us, that this is the way, by faith alone now, is the way God has always justified people. There's never been a time when people were justified in any other way, but in faith in what God has said, in faith of, uh, in the promises that he would provide a child. And he uses the example of Abraham. And he said, Abraham wasn't justified by works of the law. Abraham was justified by faith alone. Abraham didn't even have the law. The law didn't come in for 400 years after Abraham. Wasn't justified because of his circumcision. There was no circumcision until chapter 17. He was justified by faith alone when God promised to send through him a child, you see. It's always been faith, simply faith, in God's promise. The only difference between Abraham's faith and ours, there's only one difference, right? It's the object of our faith is much more clear now. We've seen the fulfillment of the promise, and his name is Jesus. And so our faith now is resting in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, you see. That's the difference, but it's the same justifying faith. It's the promise he gave in the Old Testament. They trusted him. The provision in the new, his name is Jesus. That's how one's justified, no other way. And do you know what justification is? I throw this around, but I I love this. You should see this in verse six, six through eight. He uses David's writings here now as an example. Now notice this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes David here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There are two aspects of justification. So if you're trying to wrap your mind around this, what does it mean to be justified? Those two aspects are right here and it makes a person, when they've experienced it, really happy according to Paul and David. On the one hand, you have, verses 7 and 8, the forgiveness of sins. Your lawless deeds are uh, forgiven. Your sins are covered. And the Lord will not count your sin against you. It's forgiveness, you see. That's the one part of justification. But that's not enough. God does something even greater than that when he justifies you through faith in Jesus. As verse 6 said, he counts righteousness apart from works. In other words, he credits righteousness into your account. And if you put these two things together, it's the righteousness of Christ and his righteous life. You put these two things together. It's as though you've never sinned and you always have done right. And that status never, ever changes. Have you ever done something wrong in a moment of time and you, afterwards you're thinking to yourself, I would give almost everything I have to have that moment back and do what was right. Well, friends, in justification, that's exactly what has happened. Because Christ was obedient to you, for you in every step of the way. So all of his record of obedience is put into your account. And his atoning work on the cross has erased all of your sins. They're not going to be counted against you in the judgment. You are forgiven and you have all the righteousness you need. 
This is what makes the gospel good news for sinners. And this is why Paul says, man, David's even talking about this. You know David, the one who was notorious for committing a sin or sins in that one act with Bathsheba that is probably more than anyone in here has ever done. I mean, physical adultery, deception, treason with Uriah, one of his mighty men, sending him to the front lines to have him murdered. I'd venture to guess that no one in this room has done something in act and deed as bad as that. Or you'd probably be a part of our jail ministry, but not ministering, you'd be under it. But David knew what it was then to be a man with lawless deeds whose sins are forgiven against whom the Lord will not in the judgment count that sin against him because of the descendant of David, the son of David, Jesus Christ, in his active obedience and his passive obedience on the cross paying for his sins. Beautiful thing. Faith alone, friends, which means when you share the gospel with people, it's the same for everybody. You share the gospel and they believe. It's not different for any. There's nothing different for anybody you encounter. They're all going to receive the blessing of forgiveness and righteousness in the same way. You lead them to faith. And that leads us to chapter 5, 1 through 11. This is where we left off. These results of justification. You have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1. You've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Chapter 5 and chapter 8 are largely about assurance for Christian people that what you have in Christ is permanent and forever and cannot be changed. You can rejoice now in the hope of the glory of God that you will be with him forever. And not only that, verse 3 through verse 5, we learn that even our sufferings become clearer for us because we can rejoice in them knowing that God is working good. They are not a result of his wrath. And matter of fact, verse five, he pours out his love into our hearts, the knowledge of his love, the experience of his love right through the trial so that we know, we know this trial is not a result of his wrath. We know this suffering that he loves us and is working wonderful things in us, you see. And that leads us to chapter five, verse 12 through 21 which is what we're going to jump in next week about Adam and Christ and the comparison there, which he will just be reiterating in another way and with another example, the wonderful good news of the righteousness and forgiveness of sins that we receive through Jesus Christ and the eternal life that cannot be changed. Now, friends, let me ask you this. Have you thought about the words that we brought out Martin Luther said last week that this book is so wonderful that it is worthy of your attention? He said every single day, Worthy of your attention every single day that you actually memorize this, that you work through it yourself, that you give it time. And I'm asking you as a church, listen now, this is so important to us as a foundational book for our faith and for our church life to give yourself to this now over the next probably two years as we walk through the remainder of this book. Stay with it. Endure sound teaching. It will set you apart from everyone else. Put up the slide for 2 Timothy 4, will you? Let me leave you with this. Let's be unique in our culture. Is it up there or no? No. 2 Timothy 4, just find it in your Bible. How about that? 2 Timothy 4, I want to read this to you in closing.
I charge you in the presence of God, and he's talking to Timothy here. And this is heavy on Paul's heart. It's his last, the last words, the last verses he's going to write to Timothy and never talk to him again because he knows he's about to be put to death. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance and kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience teaching in other words do this in season out of season when it's fashionable and when it's not for here it is guys listen the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching Did you know uh, sound teaching takes endurance? If What he's saying to Timothy is this. If you do this faithfully, it's going to take endurance on the, on the congregation's part. You know, when he's going till it's almost 1130 and their stomachs are growling and they're thinking about what they need to do, it, they're going to have to endure this and endure the content of the teaching that's sometimes very hard to grasp, comprehend, apply, belief. But friends, do you want to be the people that Paul is talking about here? The time is coming that they won't endure it. They just won't sit under it anymore. They're like, I'm going to go somewhere. I have these itching ears, and I've got to find teachers to suit their own passions, their own desires. What do I desire? Do I desire sound teaching that comes from the Word? Am I, do I want a pastor who is... Just obeying the scripture, what he says so clear, preach the word. Why is that being bailed on among so many churches? Like preaching is the first thing to go. Why? Because they recognize in the secret sense of movement that's what people didn't want. Of course. Paul said they wouldn't want it. But do this anyway. Paul calls him to... He says, I'm doing this before Jesus who's coming to judge the living and the dead, including you. Now, I'm holding you to this. You preach the word. In Calvary Bible Church, I'm asking you, you always have. This is such an easy church to preach to. It is. I'm serious. I love this church. I love you guys. It's, you're so easy to preach to because you want the teaching. But let's stay with this in the in the uh, letter of Paul's to the Romans. We'll end it there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for the letter of Paul to the Romans. And when we dive back in next week to chapter five, verse 12, help us to see what you want us to see in these remaining verses and chapters. Open it up to us in, in new and fresh and exciting ways and remind us of, of things that maybe we hadn't thought of throughout this time and do deep gospel work within the lives of your people and even maybe some of those that aren't your people now would come to be your people through our time in the book of Romans. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.